0: Isaiah 6 says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two covering their face, and with two covering their feet. And with two they flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe. Woe is me, for I am ruined, or literally undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sins forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord was removed from far. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah was blessed... With the fearful sight of the Lord. Here's your here's your worship stone for the week. Worship is a dialogue. Worship is a dialogue. It is a conversation, if you will. It could be argued that the key to any healthy relationship is communication. It's also true of your relationship with God. Amen? Communication. For Isaiah, worship happened in the dialogue. In Isaiah 6, we get this example of, of what coming into the presence of a holy God looks like, don't we? And what we, what we find is not just a monologue, but what we find is a dialogue, right? In worship, listen, the conversation goes two ways conversation goes two ways. Now, for all you uh, sticklers, for all you word particular ones, God's part of the conversation that is worship isn't, isn't worship. He's not a worshiper. We are, we're the sole worshiper. He's the one to be worshipped. All right. So don't, don't confuse my meaning here. If I put it more specifically, maybe I would say it this way. There is a dialogue that happens within your true and acceptable worship. There has to be. So why is it important that our nugget this morning, that that, uh, that point of worship theology that you are to stick in your heart this morning is that, is that worship is a dialogue? Why, why would that be important? It's important, I think, because some of us think that maybe we can say something to God of worth, but that he'll have nothing to say in return. That he doesn't want to say anything in return. But in fact, I've, I've found personally, and we find in Scripture, that he, that he does. When you bring an offering of worship to the throne of God, he is rarely silent in return. Think about it. Think about what you're doing when you worship. You're saying to God that he is, he is worthy of honor, worthy of praise, worthy of glory, We're saying to God, we're expressing to him our utter dependence upon him. God seems to respond to that sort of thing, doesn't he? Scripture says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. My point is this, that God is moved. God is moved by our worship. Here's your question for the day is worship a dialogue for you or is it a monologue? Is worship for you a dialogue or a monologue? Are you the only one speaking? Or in your worship, do you find that God has some things to say as well? If it's a monologue, if that's your true and right answer. If, it, if you find that you seem to be the only one speaking, that when you think of worship, it's, it's what you do. It's your singing, it's your praying, it's, it's a one-sided deal. If it is a monologue, then you might want to ask why. I mean, that's a fair question, right? Why? why am I the only one in this conversation? Um, let me suggest a few answers to the why. Maybe it's because you aren't listening. Could that be true sometimes? Can be true of me? Maybe it's because I don't want to hear what God might have to say. Does that happen sometimes? Just nod like this, elbow your spouse. Maybe it's because he isn't speaking. In a sense, can that be true? It can be. And if he isn't speaking, is there maybe the need for you to ask the question, "Why isn't he speaking? That would be a, a fair question. Now, once again, let me be clear. Don't, don't confuse the person of God here. God's not a uh, uh, middle school relationship playing games here. No offense to anyone here who might be in middle school. You guys are in high school, right? So you're, you're above such things. Um, but God's not playing these relationship games where he's going to give you the silent treatment. But maybe God's waiting on something else to happen before he says what he needs to say to your heart. Can can that be true? That, That could be the case. If God doesn't have room in our worship to speak, I would suggest that our worship is no worship at all. If God doesn't have the space within your worship to respond, to dialogue, then I would argue that your worship is no worship at all. Um, so, okay, I would agree. Sometimes, it's, it's, worship is just our declaring God's worth. You know, It seems to be this one-sided thing, but, but I would argue that it rarely, if ever, is, is just that. It rarely, if ever, just ends there. Why? I think it's because God loves you and he wants to be in conversation with you. We have a relationship with our king. Um, Think about it this way. God is not on his throne, leaned back, hoarding worship, is he? The Bible doesn't say in John 4, the passage that we've been in for weeks, that he is seeking worship in and of itself. No, what is he seeking? He's seeking the worshiper. Isaiah 66, you don't have to turn there, let me just read it, says this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? A house of praise, a house of worship, you might infer. And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Meaning, you couldn't build anything for me that I don't already have, that I didn't already make myself. Thus, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. If God needs a house, if he needs a place to reside, he says, this is where I'm looking to reside. Listen, to him, 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 it's a person. It's you, it's I. It's not a place, it's a person. It's your heart, it's the throne of your heart. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's where God longs to reside. I mean, it's about, it's about us. He wants to be in the conversation with us. He wants it to be a dialogue, not just a monologue. Worship is, is a dialogue. In Isaiah's encounter with God, there are some things we learn about worship from within his dialogue. I want you to notice that in the dialogue, we find a, a context of an encounter. The dialogue happens, in other words, when Isaiah runs face to face with the creator of all the universe. But before the dialogue ever begins, we've got to set the context for where the dialogue happens. It happens in the midst of this encounter with a, with a holy, massive creator God. So let me, let me give you seven things. And if you want to jot these down, you can. And I'm going to go quick through these because they're the context for the point. The point is is the dialogue. The context is the dialogue isn't going to happen if Isaiah doesn't come face-to-face with the presence of a holy God. You tracking with me? So listen. Listen to seven things about the encounter Isaiah has. What does he find when he runs face-to-face with God? Number one, he finds that he serves a God who is alive. In the year that King Uzziah died, Guess who was not dead? Isaiah. And God. Uzziah's death was not a a good thing. It's 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 a bad season for Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, what is Isaiah's only hope? God is still alive. What kind of encounter does he have? He has an encounter with the living God. Men and women on this earth will come and go. Rulers will come and go. Kingdoms will come and go. World powers will come and go. I saw this interesting video online this past week. It was a 90-second glimpse of all the world powers. If you want to track it down, go to like mapsofwar.com, mapsofwar.com. 90 seconds of all world powers. That's how long it took. And there's no words to it. It just shows on this map. It just highlights the region that that world power conquered. And then the next world power that conquered them and took over that. And then the next guy, his his map explodes like this. And then maybe it shrinks over here. And then it goes over here. And you just see this happen. These just flashes of color on the map where all these different world powers come about. And in 90 seconds, it's over. And it covers thousands of years. And it hit me all of a sudden like, man. If, if Alexander the Great would have seen that, it, it might have occurred to him that that was a complete waste of time. In retrospect, that we could cover not just his rule, but everybody else's in 90 seconds. I mean, like, eh. The point is, is, that, is that men, rulers, kings come and go. But what we find here in Isaiah 6, what we find in Joshua chapter 1, The guy in charge might be dead. Who was it, Steve? Moses is dead. But who's not dead? God's not dead. In this encounter, Isaiah finds that there's 100% turnover in world leadership. But the creator of all the universe has no end. He has no end. Number two, God is not only alive, he finds that God is authoritative. The picture that he gets is that God is on his throne. He's on his throne. John Piper put it this way No vision of heaven has ever caught a glimpse of God plowing a field, cutting his grass, shining his shoes, or filling out TPS reports, or loading a truck. I added the TPS part. Heaven is not coming apart at the seams. God is never at wit's end with his heavenly realm. He sits, and he sits on a throne. All is at peace, and he is in control. The throne indicates his right to rule the world. We don't give God authority over our life. He has the authority. Isaiah runs into a God that is not only a living God, but he, he is an authoritative God. Um. Scripture says that all authority on heaven and on earth is given to him. Are you okay with that, by the way? That he has complete authority without asking you. Complete authority over your life. Are we okay with that? Um, A lady named Virginia Stem Owens wrote in the Reformed Journal many years ago, uh, probably a little more boldly than I would ever say it in, in church, but I can quote it because then it's okay. She said this, let us get this one thing straight in regard to God's authority. God can do anything he damn well pleases, including damn well. And if he pleases him to damn, then it is done ipso facto well. God's activity is what it is. There isn't anything else. Without it, there would be no being, including human beings, presuming to judge the creator of everything that is. He is in charge, is the point. When Isaiah finds him on his throne, there is no question who is in charge. He is the highest court and there are no appeals. God is alive and he is authoritative. Number three, he is omnipotent. This God that Isaiah runs into is on his throne. And his throne, it is said, is lofty and exalted. The point is that there is no throne above him. He is the highest court in the land. He is not just authoritative, he is omnipotent, meaning that he has all power. There is no power that escapes him. He doesn't share any power. He doesn't he doesn't lose any power to someone else. He doesn't submit his power under anyone else's power. His throne is high and lofty and lifted up, meaning that when Isaiah saw this vision, he imagined nothing above God. It was impossible for anything to be higher than him. Maybe that's why when God has us to think about him in the heavens, it's the image of us having him above everything else, above everything that is created. God is in all power. At his sight, one commentator said, we should either be stunningly joyful when we see this God high and lifted up. Our joy should just be either overwhelming or, or... we should be utterly terrified because there's a chance he could be against us. And that's, that's the loftiness of finding this king of kings high and lifted up. He is omnipotent. Not only that, he's resplendent. He's resplendent. Isaiah says that when he sees him seated on his throne, something interesting, the train of his robe fills the temple. Maybe none of you have been in the presence of a king. I have not. You can imagine that the king's robe is a lofty garment. It's a heavy, weighty garment. It's a lavish garment. And the train of the king's garment says something about his majesty, doesn't it? The the train of his robe says something. The bigger it is, the longer it is. It says something about his majesty. The God that Isaiah runs into... His train fills the temple. Think about it this way. If you've ever been to a wedding, sometimes you find that brides try and outdo other brides with the length of their train, right? And sometimes they've got one that's three feet and six feet, and sometimes they're so long that by the time they go to the rehearsal, they've got to have one that detaches because they can't move anywhere. And you've got the other girl following around all the place having to move this lengthy train, right? The longer that train is, it, it, it's meant to say something about the majesty, the splendor, the beauty. Of not just the moment, but of that bride, right now imagine as as Isaiah uh, runs headlong into this into this king of kings and this Lord of lords, the creator of all the universe, and the vision he gets is that the train of this king's robe doesn't just doesn't just flow over his throne and down the steps of the mountainous stage that he sits upon, but it fills the holy temple it runs over all the pews and so when you come into his temple his train his robe it's everywhere it's pouring out of the windows this, this king that he runs into is resplendent he is lavish in splendor one commentator said that not only does his splendor pour out into his throne room but it falls over into all of heaven and earth. If, uh, if you watch uh, like National Geographic, some of those kind of shows, you'll, you'll find sometimes that they'll do episodes on animals that you have never seen. No human eye has ever actually seen. They have to like send down robots like into the depths of the seas because there's animals down there that none of us are ever going to be able to see with our own eyes. And so they send these little robots with cameras down there and, they, and they, they find these animals that they never knew existed. Do you know that there are fish at the bottom of the sea at depths you cannot go that have their own headlights by the creation of God alone? There are some fish that their eyes glow. There are some fish, uh, I'm, I hear that it has like this lantern that hangs from its chin. There are some that their gills come out and, and then they light up like headlights. And then when they want to hide, they just tuck them away. I mean, amazing things. And that's just fish. And, and this commentator, he said, why is it that God made fish like that in places that we'll never see? He said it's, it's, a, it's a portrait of his splendor poured out on all of his creation for perhaps maybe his own enjoyment. Maybe it's just this, maybe it's just this, this way of his splendor being shed in ways that aren't aren't even for us. It's just a portrait of who He is. He's alive. He's authoritative. He's omnipotent. He's resplendent. God is, we find in Isaiah 6, also revered. He's revered. We find these strange beings, don't we? Seraphim, Isaiah 6 calls them. You never find them anywhere else, these beings. They're only found here in the presence of God. They stood above Him, being God, each having six wings with two covering their face. Maybe, maybe that's this idea that they have to hide themselves from the very presence, the very holiness of this God they're in the presence of. With, with two wings, they covered their feet. Many commentators believe that that's not their actual feet, but that's, that's their private parts, so to speak. So that they have to cover any guilt that they might have. With two, they, they fly. It, it shows their majesty. But what's interesting is that they call out to one another and in this trifecta of praise, holy, not just once, but holy, 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 because one will not do in his presence. And if you have this idea of this chubby little fat uh, baby with angel wings just kind of fluttering around in heaven, that's not it. Because he goes on to say that when they speak the words holy, it booms with such magnitude it's greater than anything your ear has ever heard. You know, all these storms going on, you hear people, they all describe these tornadoes or hurricanes that come by like what? It sounded like a train that came by. I mean, that's the, that's the biggest thing we can think of, is that when we stand beside a locomotive, it's that powerful, it's that majestic. That's the boom of what heaven hears when these angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. It's, it's that kind of reverence going on. Uh, growing up, my dad was in the military, and we would get to see very often uh, the uh, Thunderbirds, the Blue Angels. You've seen these guys? Military airplanes, jets that do all these tricks and stuff. And when they fly by, they do these low passes, and they come, and then all of a sudden, it's just this sonic boom. I mean, maybe that's the kind of picture we need to get when we when we read, holy, holy, holy. It's the kind of holy shout from heaven from these whatever they are, that would cause you and I and Isaiah probably to duck out of fear. What is that? Not only can my ears not take it, but my heart can't stand it. He is a revered God. He's also a holy God. He's a holy God. That's the cry that they have. Threefold. Holy, holy, holy. Let me tell you about this word, holy. This word holy is meant to convey something that you really cannot convey in words. It is in words the end of the world in the ocean of language. When you get to holiness, you're ready to fall off the cliff. There's nothing more to be said. You you can't come up with with a bigger, with a higher word. Holiness is all we can come up with. No real words exist to describe the greatness of God. Holiness is all we have. Holiness is used in Scripture very often for people, for things, for items, for places. That they have been declared holy. The root word meaning of holiness, check this out, means to be cut off. The idea of cutting it off to separate it from the lump. And so now this that's been cut off or made holy is Separated. The point is this, that when you make something holy, you separate it and you devote it to God. And so if we call this a holy place, we've dedicated, we've separated it, we've devoted it to God and his service. Does that make sense? But to say that God is holy means that he's separated, cut off. He's not the same as the rest of us. He's different than the lump of us. He is holy, W-H-O, holy separate from anything you can imagine, humanly speaking. He's utterly different than you and I. That's what holy means. But it doesn't mean he's holy in that he's separated, cut off, set apart, devoted to something else. That can't be said of God's holiness. Why? Because God is not devoted to anyone other than himself. There is nothing above him to devote himself to. To say that God is holy means that he's fully devoted only to himself. He gives an account to nobody. He conforms to nothing. When asked what his own name was, do you remember what his reply is? I am. That's good. Meaning that I I am what I am. There's There's no way to define me. There's no paradigm to plug me into. There's nothing you have, humanly speaking, in and of yourself or in our world that we can say God is like that and be completely correct. He's holy something else. He's beyond us. He's out of this world. That's what it means to, to sort of say God is holy. And even that falls short. Nothing you can refer to fully defines him. Remember Job? When Job... Uh, went through his life crisis and he cries out to God for answers. You get chapter after chapter of God not answering his specific questions, but God saying, Job, here is me. Here's who I am. Here's here's my magnitude. And at the end of that, I I love Job's response. You know what Job's response is? It's essentially this. He says, I've got nothing to say to that. In fact, I I repent for even asking At the magnitude of who this holy God is, there are no words. There are no words. That's the God Isaiah's run into right here. Not only is he holy, lastly, he is glorious. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his, what did Isaiah say? Glory. Glory is the manifestation of God's holiness. Holiness is what he is. His glory is God going public with his holiness. Leviticus 10.3 says, I will show myself holy. I will be glorified. Glory carries with it the idea in the Hebrew language of light luminaries, stars. A guy named Soren Kierkegaard, maybe you've heard of him. He used an older story, I'll bring it up to date, but basically he explained the glory of God, the the explaining of His holiness in His glory this way. He said, if you were to travel out in your car, he said carriage, but I'm going to make it a car, and he said, if you were to try and get out of the city so that you could... You could see the lights of the sky so that you could see all the luminaries, all the stars, all the majesty of the heavens. If you were to try and get out of the light and go out into the country as far as you can, away from the city, but you leave your headlights on, you leave the dome light on in your car, you've got a flashlight. He said, until you turn all those things off, you're not going to be able to see the full magnitude of his glory. How is it that these angels can declare, these these beings, whatever they are, that they can declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It doesn't appear to us that the whole earth is full of his glory, does it? Kierkegaard would say it's because we've got all these other lights, these false lights shining in our life. And until we we wipe out everything that we declare is glorious, we can't see the fullness of his glory. That's the challenge for us, isn't it? to shut down any light that we have distracting us keeping us from from seeing what is already true of this God. He is holy, holy, holy. And his glory fills the earth. Whether you recognize it or not. That that okay, that's the God Isaiah has run into. Now, the dialogue happens in the context of that encounter. Imagine if you ran into that God. Do you think you'd have a problem figuring worship out? <laughs> you'd probably start where Isaiah starts. Whoa. Whoa. And with with that confession of, I don't know what I've just stepped in front of, the dialogue begins. All right, so here we go. Now that we've seen the God that Isaiah has seen, we can listen in on the conversation. So quickly, let me give you seven things that we learn from the conversation. Seven things that you can jot down about the dialogue of the worship. This dialogue, it starts in awe. And like Job, no words sometimes are necessary. Amen? Have you ever been in that moment of worship where everyone else in the room may be singing, but you don't need to sing or say a word? where you just find that in the moment, you just got to shut your mouth and be silent in the presence of God. you ever had that moment in worship where all you can do, even if the rest of the congregation is singing at the top of its lungs, all you can do is stare at the floor because you are in awe. You are in woe. I hope so. I hope so. Because very often in worship, in the dialogue, no words are necessary. It's the moment where we recognize our humility, isn't it? It's, it's Isaiah's moment of humility. It's, it's the right attitude response to a clear visual of the real, one true God, isn't it? And nobody had to tell Isaiah, here's the right attitude now that you've seen a God who's alive, holy, glorious, Authoritative, etc. He knew exactly what to do. It's a dialogue that starts in awe, and sometimes no words are necessary. It's also a dialogue that requires confession and repentance. If you're a lack of words, maybe that's where you need to be. Maybe the words you need to come up with are God, you're right, and I'm wrong. We call that confession. Whatever you say, God, I'm guilty. In that moment, Isaiah said, Whoa, I'm ruined. I'm undone. It's the idea that I, I'm, I'm totally unraveled. I'm totally exposed before this God. There's nothing that I can hide from him. There's nothing that I can, I can keep him from seeing. I'm undone. I'm all, I'm all falling apart right here in front of him. So, woe is me. He confesses. Why? Why is he ruined? Why is he undone? Because he's a man of unclean lips. What does scripture say about that which comes from our lips? It's evidence of what's in our heart. That's the idea here. It's not just that Isaiah had a foul mouth. That's not what he's worried about. He's confessing the magnitude of his sin from his lips to his toes. And he says, it's not only me, but what I know is that I come from a whole race of people who are unclean. Not a one of us can stand before this holy God and not be in awe, not be in will. It's a dialogue that requires confession and often repentance. Are you willing to do that in the dialogue of worship? I would dare say that very often your worship will stall right here. You can make it through all the songs, you can make it through the whole service, but very often worship will terminate right here if you harden your heart in the presence of God at the point where He requires that you confess whatever that you've brought in to His presence. God is holy. He will not remain in the presence of sin without confronting you on it. Amen? Because He loves us. And so maybe you've had that moment, I know I do, very often, where I'm in the the worship service and the Holy Spirit is saying, Hey, but but what about this? Are Are you willing to say, I'm guilty right here, Lord. Are you willing to say, God, you're right? You're right. I agree with you. It's a dialogue that requires confession and repentance. Number three, it's a dialogue that leads to forgiveness. Great news. At his confession, there's no hesitation. The seraphim flew to him, bringing this burning coal, touched his lips, that evidence of his sin, and it was healed. Behold, this has touched your lips, verse 7, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Immediately. All it took was his confession. All it took was his repentant heart. The dialogue, if you let it play out, will bring you forgiveness. It's a dialogue that also brings purpose. Purpose. I want you to notice that between the confession, repentance, and forgiveness, and then God's speaking, there seems to be this transition. In this conversation of Isaiah 6, the Lord doesn't speak until what verse? Do you see it? Verse 8. Now, this is a sermon within the sermon, and I could go on and it could be its own sermon. But here's the point God, God doesn't enter the conversation himself until the sin is dealt with. God doesn't enter the conversation, the dialogue of worship, until we are willing to fess up. Until. Sin is forgiven, dealt with. But thanks be to God now. He enters the dialogue. Verse 8 Then I heard the voice of the Lord. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? It's at the point of repentance, confession, forgiveness. Now Isaiah finds that he could be used. That God brings if you will, purpose now for his life. Are you lacking purpose in your life? Are you lacking direction in your life? Have you taken care of the other parts of the conversation that you need to take care of? God may not be bringing purpose, direction into your life because there's there's still another part of the conversation that has to be taken care of. It's a dialogue that not only brings purpose, but if carried out, it can lead to obedience. Isaiah had been forgiven, and so immediately he gets to, he gets to raise his hand and says, Here I am. You can, you can send me. I'll go. <clears throat> so not only is he find purpose, but he's able to be obedient at the request of God. Do you find that you, you're having a hard time being obedient? Do you find that you're not able to fulfill the purpose Maybe you've missed a step in the dialogue. (coughs) Two more and we'll be done. It's a dialogue that leads to obedience. Here's two side notes. It's a lifelong dialogue that we have with God beyond Sundays. Worship is a dialogue. It doesn't just happen here in this time or in this place. If worship only happens here for you, or if you assume that this is the only time or place that worship will occur, then you're, you're missing the greater conversation. The conversation is intended to follow you out of this place. He is the God, Emmanuel, that is with us, not just here, but where you go. We have His Holy Spirit that resides within us. God can't be limited to this place And as we say that, that just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? It seems fairly obvious that as soon as we say that that worship can't just be had here, but if you think about worship as a dialogue, my question is, does the dialogue continue when you leave this place? Are you still allowing him to speak? Are you still speaking to him? If not, then once again I would call into question whether or not there is acceptable worship even offered in this very place. It's a lifelong dialogue. Not only that, it's a dialogue that brings him glory, and his glory is the goal of it all. Amen? Amen. Is your worship a monologue, or is it a dialogue? Don't miss out. Join the conversation.